Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am very excited for today's guest. I'm, I'm joined today by Spencer Jacob, author of the fantastic new book, The Revolution That Wasn't, which takes an in-depth look at the GameStop meme stock phenomenon. Uh, this is an absolute must-read. I just finished it. It's a, it's a must-read for anyone interested uh, in behavioral finance, investing psychology, and I'm excited to have Spencer here to break it all down for us today. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Well, it is a fantastic book. Uh, as an author myself, I, I know what a labor of love it is to put a book out into the world. And you did this uh, rather quickly uh, because this is a fairly uh, recent phenomenon. And we're, we're glad to have you here to break it down with us. So one of the things that, that I believe passionately and I have found to be true in my study of human behavior is that environment matters a great deal. So I think it's important to, to, to start our conversation around this investor behavior uh, with a look at the backdrop against which all of this occurred, which is, of course, the pandemic uh, and really sort of the height of lockdown when, when all of this was going on. Uh, in your research for the book, what do you think it was about the specifics of the environment, the pandemic and the lockdown that contributed to the kind of madness that we saw? It was everything altogether. So it, it and you even have to go back a bit. I mean, you know, in when you study behavioral finance or you study manias, panics, crashes, I've I've been for many, many years been fascinated by kind of financial euphoria. You know, you kind of learn that this time is never different, that things are kind of always the same, that the names change, the technology changes. And that's true. Uh, I mean, our, our brains as humans were hardwired to to be like this, and that's why bubbles and crashes keep on happening. But every generation is different. In this generation, what were their formative experiences? Were the people who participated in this are between the ages of you know, it's 18 and 35. What they experienced was uh, possibly their parents losing their homes, possibly having difficulty buying a home themselves, repaying their student loans. And so they had a very dim view of Wall Street to begin with. And so it's not a generation you would expect to rush in and open up 10 million brokerage accounts as they did last year, or let's say 15 million or so over the course of this entire story. But they did. And what played a role in that? A speculative atmosphere was part of it because you had sports gambling that had been legalized. First, you had daily uh, fantasy sports and then sports gambling legalized in most U.S. states beginning in 2018. So you had a lot of mainly young men, disproportionately young men, getting into this sort of this gambling activity through their smartphones. Then you had commissions that were zero dollars at, at brokers like Robinhood and then went to zero at every other broker. All these brokers were terrified of Robinhood because they that broker got about half of new accounts that were opened in, in the US. And they all went to zero and they thought they would take a big hit. And the opposite happened. When you take something that's fun, and it turns out that trading stocks is kind of fun for these people, and you make it cost nothing, even if it had cost just a few cents or a few bucks before, 
having it in your mind cost zero makes you just take as much as you want, like the Halloween candy, you know, that someone leaves out, you know, if it doesn't cost anything, you'll, you'll eat it all. And so trading exploded in this cohort specifically. Then you had the pandemic where you had all the sports disappear, uh, all the fun stuff like going out with your friends disappear and a lot of extra money in your pocket as a young person through stimulus checks, unemployment checks, money you didn't spend doing anything social all of a sudden. And, and that created this, this perfect storm. And then you had the volatility. You had the most volatile stock market environment ever. So it made like, you know, like you, you could, like, it was like betting on the longest long shot in a horse race, a gimpy horse that was expected to come in last. And he came in first by a furlong. And that's what the, these people did. And they won. So you, you had the biggest collapse in stock prices from a record to a bear market ever. And then you had by significant margin, the biggest recovery ever because the Fed threw everything at the, the wall. And, you know, and, you, and so it, it was exciting for these people. And they, you know, success is a very bad teacher. And they, they succeeded very early in making money. Almost anything you bought went up. You know, I think I, I have I have thoughts too on the role of risk in our lives. You know, I think uh, we we generally think of humans as being risk averse. That's not always the case, but I think we're generally risk averse. But this was a period in time in which our lives had been completely de-risked, right? In in many cases, at the height of lockdown, depending on where you lived. I mean, you were going on walks in the neighborhood, baking sourdough. There was no excitement. There was no yep. risk. There was no intrigue. And I think people need an element of risk, however small, in their lives. Do you think that that factored in the fact that risk had been effectively uh, systematically stripped from our lives? Absolutely. That That is uh, an element that I... I've noticed. I've I've read articles subsequently about that. I, I only flecked at it in in the book, but I think that I, I should have have discussed it a bit more. That psychological aspect. I noticed just driving around. I mean, I as I started to uh, to go back to work. I work in New York City, but I have to drive in some days. Didn't want to take the bus. That the number of reckless drivers is is off the charts. The number of of accidents is off the charts. There's this feeling of we got through this deadly thing that didn't kill us, but it might kill us still. And we're just going to take you know crazy risks, and yeah, and I think that that also played a role not just for these this young cohort, but for all of society. There was a boredom and this kind of you know flirting with with death and danger, and they got through it. And yeah, and people people wanted to to roll the dice in other aspects of their lives. You know, I read I read an article this week that said that driving was down 20 percent in 2021, but that traffic deaths were up 20 percent. I mean, it's really extraordinary to think about that we are driving at 80 percent of our previous rate, but having deaths occur at 120 percent of, of the previous numbers. It really does speak to this element that there was a there was a level of risk taking of aggressiveness of, of something that that was looking for an outlet and, and found it in this phenomenon. Now you you've spoken really nicely, I think, to the macro backdrop of the pandemic and the other things you mentioned. Let's get very micro now and talk about the environment that that sits in each of our hands, uh, which is of course the trading app in and of itself. You know, you've spoken to how free trading uh, it, it brought about many of these behaviors. We know in from the behavioral finance literature that that free is a category unto itself. 
you know, when you look at how people behave when something costs a dollar or a quarter or, you know, some infinitesimally small amount, it's still so different the way people behave and consume versus when it's zero. So trading costs go to zero, which is a big catalyst. But I want you to speak as you do in the book to to actually the gamification of trading, the trading apps themselves and, and how they catalyzed some of these behaviors. Absolutely. So there, there was a unique psychological and historical environment that caused all of this. And like I said, you know, people, human psychology doesn't change, doesn't change quickly. Uh, it, it will take centuries or eons to, to change the way that our, our brains are wired. But what I didn't appreciate until I started researching this book, and it's, it's eye-opening, is how these companies have cracked the, the psychology of their users either by accident or on purpose. And what I'm talking about are, are social media apps and companies and, and these trading apps. And they're on the same device, by the way, and that, that plays a powerful role. You know, you, you have this thing that it's held in your hand and you would think that it would make you a better investor, right? I mean, compared to, let's go back 40 years, right? Um, you had to go and look up something in a musty old library. You had to pay $100 to, to trade you know, information was very hard to come by. Certainly news headlines weren't coming across. You didn't have a stock ticker at your disposal unless you were a professional. It was complicated to trade. You would think that people would be able to do much better having this device with all the world's knowledge basically in your hand. You can trade instantly. You can react to something instantly. You have a bunch of people on social media you can consult. And people are worse. Even though the the costs have come way down, people are no better at, at trading and they're even worse because of the, the stimuli that they get. The, so what do you have in your, your hand when you have Robinhood or one of their competitors? First of all, you have a very, very slick app that's designed to be frictionless, hmm. but it also induces FOMO. So you open it up and they helpfully show you what's been happening. These are the 10 most active stocks. These are the 10 things that went up the most, 10 things that went down the most. Oh, this thing's going up. Maybe I should hop on board. And in my conversations with uh, with young people, that's basically what they were doing. Whether they were cynical about it or or naive about it, they all looked at the same thing. What's been going up? What's happening? What's being talked about on social media? What tickers are trending? And they chase those. And you'd see this explosion in activity. And and you know, time and time again, these people, it was more the rule than the exception. They would be a little bit too late to it. They'd wind up losing a bit of money or not quite catching the the wave, but they'd keep trying again and again anyway, because one time they had caught it. And, and that's a that's a, an effect very well known to casinos, the near miss effect. That's why when the, the casino, when the cherries roll around, oh, that if that cherry were one bar higher, I would have won the jackpot. Right. I came so close. And that that's in a way more tantalizing than winning the sort of random rewards that you get, but looking like it's very, very close or playing the lotto and getting a couple of the numbers right. Well, if I'd had those two other numbers right, I, I would have won Powerball. Gee, that gets you to play more, not less. So it that these apps clearly to me are are, are designed to get that effect it's from mm. the colors and the fonts. And then there, there is confetti and fireworks. And then there's a, an actual lottery that you're uh, rewarded with. When you open up uh, a Robinhood account, you get a mystery free share of stock. Mm -hmm. uh, that could be a $5 stock, which is still pretty good if you only put 10 bucks into it, but it could be a $250 stock from time to time. So you get this free share of stock and it's it's like a like a lottery. 
And then when you convince a friend to open an account, you get another free share of stock and they get one too. And so it, it, it works like a multi-level marketing scheme almost where your customers do the, the marketing of the service for you. And so they, they said during, in their prospectus that the payback in terms of a dollar spent on marketing uh, for their services is is five months. Usually, you you know, if you invest in something and you get paid back in eight or nine years, you're doing pretty well. If you get paid back in five months, you're doing really, really well. So it's a giving away these free stocks is a no brainer for them. It's it's you know, it's getting more and more people in the door. And you had an absolute explosion in the numbers of people opening up Robinhood or Webull or eToro accounts throughout this episode from late 2019 through the the height of the original meme stock squeeze and even today. So when when we look at sort of the the book on the the playbook on behavioral finance, if you want to induce a behavior, uh, they say to make it easy, attractive, social, and timely, and every single one of those conditions are are met in all of these trading apps. They're frictionless. They look great. You have a sense of what your peers are doing and, and you can check it moment to moment. I mean, every single one of those conditions for bringing about this behavior are met. So we have this perfect storm now. You've set the stage beautifully. We've got lockdown conditions. We've got de-risk lives. We have gamified trading machines in our pockets that update us moment to moment. And into this perfect storm walks walks one roaring kitty, Keith Gill, uh, who became the face of this movement who is this gentleman and, and how did he become so central in this whole movement? So R- Roaring Kitty, well, he was he's anonymous through most of this story, or pseudonymous, I should say. Uh, he started out as a deep effing value on, on Reddit, uh, then about a year later started a YouTube channel. And and this he himself is a, a great lesson about behavioral finance um, in a nutshell. He was different than these people. He was the same age. He was 33, 34 years old during the time the story takes place. Long hair and, you know, and it loved memes. But he was a chartered financial analyst, which is a difficult qualification uh, to get. He worked for a financial services firm, not a, not a, he wasn't a hedge fund manager or anything like that. He didn't have uh, clients per se, but he, he understood the nuances of finance and he, liked GameStop as a stock, not because he thought there would be a short squeeze because he envisioned any of this at first. And he started posting about it, started writing about it. And if you look at at basically 80% of the, the posts that he put up, he's kind of being ignored or even ridiculed for his views because his views are the uh, kind of anathema to this uh, fast money crowd. You know, he, he would have doubled his money and people said, well, you should sell. And Buy something else, or this is a dog, or whatever. He said, "No, that's not that's not how you make money, and you have to be patient." And you know, he wrote incomplete sentences, and you know, people were just just laughing at him mostly. You know, for and then he would lose half of his money. You know, um, over time, he he bought the most speculative instruments you can you can purchase on the stock, which are long dated, far out of the money call options. They're basically like like lottery tickets, uh, long dated lottery tickets on a stock that might expire worthless, and then when GameStop started to come into the headlines, you had, um, you know, you had other short squeezes going on. GameStop was this kind of loser stock that nobody paid attention to. It wasn't Tesla. It wasn't uh, making an electric vehicle. It wasn't making any, you know, computer chips. It was like a dying, it was known to this generation, but it was a, a dying company like Blockbuster three years or two years before it went bankrupt. 
But because it was dying, you had these these hedge funds that felt very safe betting against it. And when you when you bet against a stock, you kind of leave a powder keg lying around because you sell it short, which technically means that without owning it, you sell the stock, but you borrow it from somebody else in order to to sell it, which means that your theoretical losses are unlimited because a stock price can go up to any any number. It can only go down to zero. So it's the opposite of you or I, what you or I probably do in, in our retirement accounts as investors, where the most you could do is lose all your money. Mm-hmm. The most you can make is infinity. They're the opposite. And these people on this, this message board, Wall Street Bets, clearly there were some sophisticated people spotted this in connection to GameStop, that it was there was so much short interest that it was basically like you could like, you know, like it was like dousing a theater and kerosene and having like one really narrow exit door and then lighting a match. If you if you got that fire to to rage, all those short sellers would run for the exit and force the share price up. And then they discovered that, hey, this guy has been writing about this thing for a long time. And he discovered in turn that there could be a totally different investment thesis, a short squeeze. And he went from posting these thoughtful takes about the company to just posting memes. He went from posting cerebral things to emotional things. And because he had made this tremendous bet and was making more and more money, he went from 50,000 to 100,000 to 500,000 to a million to 3 million to 5 million. And he had made such a multiple of his money. He eventually, at one point, he had over $50 million uh, in value in his account. He just kept posting screenshots of his account and nobody knew who he was. That you had a bunch of things come into play. You know, uh, all of a sudden, that people emotionally reacted to it. And they saw that he didn't sell. They saw that he was very successful, which brings in a concept called social proof. Mm-hmm. And they saw that that he wasn't selling and he was just a hero. And his timing was exquisite. His his discipline was exquisite. I mean, he really is. So he had the, the timing of a kind of a Warren Buffett in the sense that he didn't sell and didn't sell and didn't sell, even though his losses, his, his gains were, were piling up. And the way that he he conveyed that information was in a very social media savvy way. And so this is perfect storm. And he became the hero of the movement. I know that's a very long answer, but that, that kind of tells you the role that that he played. He was the mascot. Yeah, no, brilliant explanation. And when, when I think about how this all caught fire, there's, there's the elements of mimesis and social proof that you talked about. Uh, but I think part of it was was the message of GameStop itself, which was which was I think ultimately twofold which was, you know, first of all, you can get exquisitely wealthy the same way that that uh, Roaring Kitty did, right? He's posting these screenshots. People are able to envision similar success. So you can get wealthy on the, on the one hand. And, and then on, on the other hand, you can do this by sticking it to the man, right? Like this was, you're going to get wealthy, but you're going to do so in this, in this sort of righteous way. How central to the the whole phenomenon and, and the explosion of the stock do you think this moral dimension of the message was? It played a role late in the, the game. So there's this misconception about short sellers. Just like you and I, we buy a stock and we'd like it to go up. Mm-hmm. Short sellers just take the, the opposite bet. They're very vital in the, the ecosystem, but they've always been vilified. I mean, going back centuries since short selling became possible. I'm talking to the 1600s. It was banned. They were flogged. I mean, it's a group of of people who are kind of seen as vermin or carrion, you know, carrion eaters or whatever. And so, and they're not, you know, but 
there's this misconception that they want to destroy companies. Now, here's GameStop, which was very much a part of these people's childhood mm-hmm. and and teen years and you know young adult years and a nostalgic part of it. And they were seen as not just as making a, a bet against a stock, but making a bet against something that they felt kind of nostalgic about. And so it was perfect, you know, in terms of a, a vehicle to turn this generation, even though they didn't really understand short selling most of them, to turn it against them. And so a, as the price began to rise, you had at the beginning of our story, you had about a, a million people on this forum, Wall Street Bets. It was a big forum, but maybe the 70th or 80th biggest forum on on Reddit. Mm-hmm. Not not significant really. By early 2020, as a Wall Street Journal reporter, I began seeing some stock surge. On, you know, I'd look for the news, and then oh, they talked about it on Wall Street Bets. Haha, you know, even like a bankrupt company would surge because they buy the wrong company. Then, as the group grew, and I think it's like any any religious or political movement, the the people who come to it late tend to be the most earnest, and the people who came to this late were were very earnest, and they more of them viewed it as a, a movement, and they check in on. Roaring Kitty's uh, E-Trade account every day. He would post it every day. If he's still in, I'm still in. This is great. I don't care if I lose money. I'm going to you know, stick it to these guys, these hedge funds. And to them, hedge funds were the guys who took their, their parents' house or, or uh, extended them a student loan and didn't give them forbearance or, or whatever. You know, Hedge funds embodied all the evils in the world, and they were trying to destroy GameStop. They weren't trying to destroy it. They were just waiting for it to go bankrupt. You don't destroy a stock by selling it short, but that that's a subtle it's a distinction that that was was lost on this crowd. And so, yes, it became a way to make money and a way to stick to the man simultaneously. Some people had one goal, some the other goal. Many of them viewed it as as the same goal, kind of a twofer. You know, you you bankrupt uh, a billionaire, you know, ruin their life, and you make money. That's the that that's that's really what what they were going for. And I, I, even though the book is, is, you know, before the book was, you know, was out, you know, I'm, I'm getting, you know, mail from people, hate mail from people saying, what do you mean? It wasn't a revolution. It's still going on. There's a whole movement has morphed into a, to something else uh, from this. And it's like, you know, this is a kind of online conspiracy theories is very difficult to engage with these people, but they're very passionate about it, but they're not sure what they're passionate about, but they want to, to bankrupt wall street. And they're, they, they have continued after the story, it stayed. It has remained a thing, using different stocks and different things as a vehicle to bankrupt people on Wall Street. They've, they've tried to rekindle the magic again and again. The part of the story that I tell, they actually did succeed in costing some funds billions of dollars. Uh, so they had a brief shining moment of success, and and they want that magic to to continue. It it won't. And I can explain the technical financial details of why it won't, but but that but anyway, that it's it was exciting for them, and they wanted those two things. And the title of the book is the revolution that wasn't because it it wasn't on either count. They didn't really succeed. They kind of failed on both. So I haven't checked. I haven't checked today or even this week, but I know that the many of these meme stock names remain while uh, far south of their their previous peaks remain extremely elevated 40 50 times where they were a couple of years ago why is it that you think that this is sort of it sounds like you think that this is bound to fail and that it won't last why why do you think that's the case well it 
the the reason that it, it's not the case is that you you could trade you know tulips in the 1630s or beanie babies in the 1990s or or, or anything and its value is just what somebody else will will pay for it today you you don't have any professional investors owning these stocks except for index funds that have to own them as a kind of a me- mechanical exercise so it's it's dominated utterly by retail investors who buy and sell to each other these companies have gone out and re- they've taken advantage of this some of them and sold hundreds of millions or even in excess of a billion dollars of stock kind of quite cynically to these people at at elevated prices. When a company raises money and it has cash in the bank and it's not going to go bankrupt anymore, then its share price should be higher. So that's that that happened. It, it, their share prices shouldn't be as low as they were at the beginning of this exercise. They probably shouldn't be as high as the, today when you and I are having this conversation, but a price can stay elevated. The only way to to put that price down is what I mentioned earlier, short selling. Short sellers play a useful role because if you don't know anything about investing and you come to the market and you see share price of Enron or MCI WorldCom or whatever, and you think it's a good company and it's, I guess this is what the price, the price was a little higher before. Now it's 10% cheaper. I'm going to buy it. What does that price even mean? The price has to be cash that you'll receive in the future as the owner of that business. You can look at these businesses today and say quite clearly that the cash that you'll receive over many years as an owner of that business, because that's what you are as a shareholder, is is tiny or nothing, and they might they might go bankrupt, and even if they don't, they probably won't be too too successful. So, they are objectively overvalued then in you know by some orders of magnitude, but the price can stay high, and the price can go higher, just like the price of a Dogecoin can go higher, or some uh, you know joke cryptocurrency can go higher. It's just what somebody else will pay for it, and that's a, a a lesson that this generation needs to to unlearn. Unfortunately, they they. You know their experience in in investing is I bought this thing it went up, yay I made money. If more people buy it and it goes up, I'll make money. Without thinking about how, how wealth builds and compounds over the decades, you you can't consistently make money on the greater fool theory unless you're you're very lucky. You only consistently make money in a kind of a slow way unless unless there's a kind of a windfall that accrues to an individual. That's fine, but it's not going to accrue to everybody. You can't all find a greater fool to to purchase your stock that's not how investing works i'm now i'm going a little bit too long but there's one thing that i i wanted to say that i didn't get to which is the whole social media aspect of this you know there there used to be message boards where you would read all kinds of you know kind of basically pump and dump schemes and people would say the stock is going to the to the moon it's going to infinity and some people would take the bait and buy it and maybe even get out in time but Compared to the the early part of the internet, what you encounter today on social media is an order of magnitude stronger. Because Daniel, let's say that let's say you and I both post something on uh, Wall Street Bets or some similar social media about a stock, and uh, let's say I'm I'm boring like I usually am, and I say, well, there's a chance it'll do well, and uh, I, I put five percent of my portfolio into this. Here's a you know screenshot of my portfolio if I'm you know happy sharing those details, and this is why my comment is going to go nowhere because it's cerebral, because I'm cautious. Now let's say you go in and you say I just mortgaged my house. Uh, I put my entire portfolio into this. This is going to the moon. You don't really give very coherent reasons, but you have a lot of rocket ships and exclamation points and write in all caps. 
your post is exciting and mesmerizing and will rise to the top. Now, a third person comes to that, that message board and sees it. First, we've always known that people who are more confident as opposed to more cerebral and accurate are more likely to be followed in any situation. That's that's always existed. But they're not only are they more likely to listen to you, they're much more likely to see your comment because it will be upvoted, whereas they will not see mine. So it's not just that mine is, is less alluring, it's also invisible. And yours is very visible. The, the wilder, the better. And the bigger risk you take, you know, the more likely it is to, to get attention. And that's the ethos. And so people who don't know anything about investing and they don't have a, a guy in a suit who knows something about it to help them and hold their hand, they're you know, 21 years old and they take their $200 in savings and they go to the stock market and they go onto Reddit to see how to do it. That's the advice they see. And they think that that's actual financial advice. Buy something, it'll go up, I'll sell it, I'll do the next thing. And that kind of was their experience. People experienced a lot of early success in 2020, not so much in 2021 and much less in 2022, unfortunately. It's not working out that way. Right. I want to talk about, you know, sort of dovetailing off of this, I want to talk about the the future of Finfluencers, if you will. We've got this ecosystem now where everyone from TikTok stars to well-known public CEOs are, are pumping their stocks uh, in ways that sometimes seem to sort of laugh in the face of regulators. A lot of people, I think, have been uh, ha- have questioned the propriety of these things. Where do you think this goes? Is is more regulation coming? You spoke to the way that this doesn't seem to be working in the same way over the last uh, year to eighteen months. Do you think this is going to be an ongoing phenomenon, or or, or ha- have we seen sort of this? This was a one and done with with these specific influencers. It's. I'm afraid it's not a one and done. And and you're exactly right. You know that you, you've had anonymous people build big social, big and lucrative, by the way, social media followings as finfluencers, people who who come out and say, I don't know what I'm doing and laugh about it and then show that they made a lot of money. People with with a few months of experience who say, oh yeah, all I do is I buy stocks and they go up and then I sell them. Like as if that, you know, you had like a time machine or something. And and then you have the likes of Chamath and Elon Musk and other people and regulators have given them at most a, a slap on the wrist. So I think it's it's going to continue. And I wonder, I, I have to think why, why they do it. Some of them do it to profit personally, but I think a lot of them, they're, they're already very wealthy and they do it to profit psychically because uh, attention is the, the currency of social media. And, you know, you have this, this group of young people who kind of have the pitchforks out for, for wealthy people, but they love them. Uh, which is weird, right? It, you, you kind of resent wealthy people who kind of, where there are two sets of rules, one for them and one for you. And yet here, here are people, here are the perfect examples uh, of people who operate by a different set of rules. Elon Musk, you know, a few years back tweeted out that his company was going to be purchased for $420 a share, which was just made up. It, it wasn't true. He, he, he made it up. There's no basis. In fact, the price was a pot joke. He did it during market hours millions and uh, tens of millions of dollars of, of the stock changed hands. People bought, people sold, people bet on it. People said, oh, it's got to be true, even though the company hadn't put out a statement as required by by law. And he got a, a, a fine, uh, not a very big fine to, to him, what, you know, the, either the first or second richest man on earth as we speak. And it was a big joke. And he was supposed to have somebody monitor his tweets. That hasn't happened. 
you know, he, he's basically kind of thumbed his nose. And I think that regulators are are kind of afraid to be, regulators are awful anyway. Securities regulators don't do a good job of, of protecting investors. I think that Gary Gensler, the current head of the SEC, is more serious about it. But I, I think that he, he runs into a lot of lobbying opposition and lobbyists rule and lobbyists for one reason or another kind of gum up the works when you come up with rules that would address some of this. Uh, and, and the laws have been made more and more and more lax in terms of what kinds of things you can bring public. Today, Robinhood did this. You can file confidentially for an initial public offering. If you're a quote unquote growth company and have less than a billion dollars in revenue, you can uh, go public through a SPAC, which is just a blank check company. They've turned out to be horrible investments. And the whole idea is that it's democratizing investing. And it's not. It's, it's just, just an easier way to, to separate investors from their money. I, I, I hate seeing it. It's one of the reasons I used to be an analyst that I became a financial journalist is because I saw too many you know relatives and friends and friends of the family kind of losing money again and again to to Wall Street's machinations. And I wanted to, you know, to, to write about it. I also like being a journalist. I, I'm not, it's just not just a public service, but I, I feel it's important to, to point these things out. And it's very, very hard, even when you're having a one-on-one conversation with somebody who's in the process of falling prey to one of these things that's about to unravel to convince them otherwise, because they're, they're excited and they're making money. And it's, you know, doing it in a in a book obviously is even harder. Although I, I hope that people read the book and and talk to people in their lives who are are you know are playing these games, and you know point out what what might be wrong with it and and who might be benefiting. So, from my final sort of formal question here, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the marks of a former guest and friend of the show, Jim O'Shaughnessy. Mm-hmm. Oh, when I was talking about this online, I said, you know, I'm excited to have Spencer on. I love his book. Like, excited to talk about this. And he said, make sure that you ask him about sort of questioning the official narrative. I mean, I think Jim is a great second order thinker. And I think his question was around, we have this narrative that that 15 million mom and pop retail investors were sort of newly inducted into capital markets. And this was a grassroots phenomenon that, that drove these sorts of things. I think Jim is saying, look, there was a lot more sort of quote unquote smart money professional traders who, who became aware of this phenomenon and were doing it. Uh, sort of as uh, using these retail traders as as a Trojan horse for 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 their own purposes. Uh, how how what, what do you think of Jim's question, and and how much of that did you see in your research for the book? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Jim is is one of the most thoughtful guys uh, who I, I follow in finance. Um, you know, he he is a great follow on, on Twitter. His yes. book, What Works on Wall Street, is a classic. I'm sitting here. Five feet from me on my shelf, I consult it frequently. Yeah, he he is he's correct. You question the narrative. The narrative of this was first of all that the narrative was you know kind of journalists wrote it because you write the first draft of history and it's messy, and you say this is a revolution, this is a grassroots thing, and then when the dust cleared, yes, you could see first of all that a lot of individuals were were selling into this because they had all of a sudden they'd made enough money to buy an apartment or. Or something, you know, more money than they'd ever had, and they 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 didn't have diamond hands. They sold, but yes, whenever there's a eruption in the market, there are opportunists who who step in, and they stepped in in multiple ways. One, first of all, they stepped in as kind of as vultures 
to exacerbate the losses suffered by some of these big hedge funds because they saw that they were bleeding and they they jumped on and piled on the pressure, made money buying the stocks they had to dump, uh, you know, bought options to kind of push it further and and profit from it. So there undoubtedly it wasn't a, a purely retail thing because it never is. You know, there there are are too many smart people with computers who have better information than you who will jump in and take advantage of any trend. And by the way, even today, about 85% of hedge funds today have pay for or have internally services that monitor social media. So you have people on social media talking about having the next big squeeze. Well, there's a computer algorithm that's reading that faster than you can read it. It's interpreting it using either a, a human intern, but more likely natural language processing, determining what's fake, what's real, what people are likely to act on, counting the number of rocket ship emojis and whatever, and then trading ahead of you. So they were they were there at, at the time, and especially they're they're there now. Any, you know, and 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 that's why I, I say that, like it always is, Wall Street is the one that made money. Wall Street loves volatility. It loves when people come in and think they can can beat Wall Street. And of course, there are people who are gonna say, I did beat Wall Street, I made a hundred thousand dollars on GameStop, you idiot. Yeah, of course, there you can't speak about every individual case, but writ large. Wall Street loved this, and they like this level of excitement. And there are a lot of people on Wall Street, either just as middlemen taking, you know, taking no risk, uh, like Robinhood or Citadel Securities, or as as you know, as hedge funds making a bundle. And I, when I, I know a lot of people on Wall Street, and when I say, hey, you know, I wrote this book, you might be interested in it. Because oh man, yeah, I'm going to get that book. You know how much money I made that week? The guys who are millionaires already who got in and saw exactly what was happening and were totally hard-nosed about it and made 200 grand, 500 grand. Bill Gross, the bond king, jumped in. And I, st- I talk about him in the book. And he, he explained, he, he warned people what's happening. I'm with Main Street, but you're going to lose. And then he, then he made $10 million. Just, you know, he's already a, a multi-billionaire, but just he, he just couldn't resist because he saw that there was money to be picked up. So yeah, you know, he, uh, Jim is, is totally right. And, and that's, that's the title of my book, The Revolution That Wasn't. When you, it's it's so hard to distill down, um, you know, a long book like this into into one sort of nugget. But but what's your message, I, I guess, for investors? Having done the research, having put this all together, this sort of singular phenomenon in markets that was so top of mind, I think, for everyone, right? I mean, I'm getting getting texts from, you know, my mom and people who, who are not typically texting me uh, about what's going on on Wall Street. What's the takeaway for the average for the average person uh, in light of everything you've learned about this? So the the really ironic thing here is that Wall Street was not having such a great time because all the technology and competition that made this possible, that made it possible to trade for zero dollars, to have this thing in your hand where you could do it and instantly get a settlement, you know, going through uh, some cell tower somewhere, going to a data center and and back to you in a nanosecond. All those technologies have also kind of made this a golden age for investors. So if you want to be, and you want to stick it to the man, you want to stick it to Wall Street and do well as a twofer, the opposite of what these people did uh, or and still are doing, you can do it. That's the ironic thing, this, the very same technology. So if you want to stick it to Wall Street, if for some reason you have a, an ax to grind against Wall Street, go in. You can, have it, you can even do it with a Robinhood account. There's no problem doing it with this buy a handful of stocks, 
or broadly diversified exchange-traded funds. Don't check your account eight times a day like a typical Robinhood investor. As a matter of fact, don't check it more than twice a year or once a year. You know, you don't have to. You can reinvest the dividends. You can pay Robinhood nothing. Robinhood will hate your guts. There's nothing they can do about it. They're not going to close your account or Fidelity or Schwab or whoever your broker is. You know, just buy a bunch of, uh, of funds. Don't touch them. Don't panic when the market goes crazy and there's a pandemic or, you know, an airplane flies into a skyscraper or some scary headline. Just stick with it. Be patient. Be, you know, be, be fearful when others are greedy. Be greedy when, other, greedy when others are fearful. But just just be passive and you'll you'll beat 80. It's proven you'll beat 80 to 85 percent of other investors and, and you'll sleep well at night and Wall Street will make pennies off of you. So that's that's the way to stick it to the man. It's it sounds boring, but that that's it. You know, it's it's less exciting than what you read about on Wall Street bets. It's but it, it is absolutely the way to go about this. That's the lesson. It's a great lesson. We have the tools at our disposal. Uh, it's up to us and our behavior to determine if we'll use them to our own benefit or to our own detriment. Spencer, it's an incredible book. If if people want to get the book, remind us of the name one more time. Where can they get it? How can they support you and your work? Thanks so much. The name of the book is The, Rev- the Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Uh, it's for sale on February 1st, wherever fine books are sold and available for, for pre-order before that. Uh, I can be followed uh, at Spencer Jacob on Twitter, which is spelled S-P-E-N-C-E-R-J-A-K-A-B at spencerjacob.com. You can follow me at the Wall Street Journal, where I edit the Heard on the Street column. I write less frequently and edit more frequently, but you can see my byline every once in a while, and you can see my pixelated picture there. Uh, on top of my articles, if you are a subscriber. And uh, thanks so much for having me, Daniel. It's a, um, I, I loved your questions. No, uh, a wonderful opportunity for me and for my listeners. So thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.